Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is April 24th of 2014, and today our guest is Eddie Einbinder. He is the author of the book, How to Have Fun and Not Die, and he also has a film series on YouTube called Play Safe, and we're going to get to him in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Eddie Einbinder, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening, Eddie? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming aboard. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book. Uh, what what uh, motivated you to write this book, and what is this book about? The initial motivation, um, and I can preface this by saying that uh, I started writing when I was 20 years old, and that's now uh, about a decade ago, um, was to prevent uh, overdose on drugs for myself and my friends. Um, and to that point, the main uh, idea within the book throughout is to prevent overdose, disease, and death when, uh, when doing drugs, when involved with a lot of the behaviors that one associates with drug use. Well, tell us a little bit. Um, you go through drugs specifically one by one. I'm going to walk you through the table of contents a little bit right here and ask you some things. You've got the first chapter here about, it's called Transitional Drug. What is that about? Yeah, and I believe uh, that's with a question mark after it. Yes, a question right, mark. Yeah, as far as, mm-hmm. and really that was about questioning that, uh, that myth as far as marijuana, uh, especially mm-hmm. back then, being labeled a transitional drug. And the idea that, you know, along with countless other myths, that media would try to have people think that certain drugs lead to certain other drugs, probably, you know, maybe more innocent like marijuana, leading to more dangerous drugs. And the idea that I think that actually is not true, and they just take advantage of the idea, well, the fact that people try drugs typically because of what they have access to, because of what they have the, uh, the I don't want to say courage, but uh, what they have the notion of experimenting with. And usually for a first-timer, you want to start out with something that, say, for instance, we know no one has ever overdosed on marijuana. Um, so it's, uh, it's an easier thing to try first uh, psychologically. Um, but that, you know, they, they, they exploit the, uh, the timeline in that case, that in certain places, mm-hmm. certain areas of America, it's actually more common that, uh, somebody would run into methamphetamine before marijuana or before alcohol, uh, far mm-hmm. before they'd run into cocaine or heroin. Mm-hmm. So that it's really just an issue of what came first out of convenience. And, uh, I think within that chapter, make an example of what actually could be considered transitional drugs are more about 
substances that have actually similar effects. Um, the example much more researched on now is, uh, you know, the transition from Oxycontin to heroin with a lot of people who start out being uh, innocently prescribed Oxycontin to actually treat pain and then go down a road. So that's, uh, that's what that chapter tackles. Hmm. Well, that one with Oxycontin to heroin, that's, that has a lot to do with price, doesn't it? It has a lot to do with price. It has a lot to do with access. Um, once the prescriptions run out and the doctor no longer sees you fit to be getting prescribed something, we don't need a prescription to uh, walk up to a heroin dealer in the street. And you're right that it is much cheaper. Um, but, yeah, a combination of those two things, typically. That, yeah, it's uh, kind of... Uh, go ahead. It's kind of... Uh, you know, it was kind of surprising to me when I first started hearing about this because, you know, my mindset is way back in the 70s and 80s. Heroin used to be pretty damn expensive, but it's gotten very, very cheap. Right, right. And I... Uh... I, that's that's true. I wasn't uh, I wasn't around back then, but uh, but yeah, typically things have gotten cheaper in general as uh, you know as they uh, are not regulated, and it goes back to I mean you know obviously we can touch on drug policy, which I got into later on within the writing of the second edition, um, regarding regulation and legalization of all of these substances and, you know, the gross uh, effects. Because really when we talk about the dangers of heroin versus Oxycontin, a lot of it really is just related to the fact that it's illegal and unregulated and the stigma that comes with that and the lack of education because of that and all of these other issues that tie in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was going to mention one thing since you mentioned methamphetamine and marijuana. Um, people that know me, they know I spent six years in Japan, and it's very interesting. In Japan, it is extremely difficult to find uh, marijuana unless you know servicemen there. Um, but the, right. the Japanese, in the general Japanese populace, it's hard to find, and it has very severe prison sentences attached to it. So I know I knew lots of people that were doing methamphetamine. It was very easy, and you know I knew people that were dealing. I would say, you hey, know, I'm not interested in this. Can you get me marijuana? And it's like, no, I can't get that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and you know, and it's there are different variables involved, but it's that it's the simplicity of what does someone have access to? Of you know, it's the number one variable I'd say that's going to determine the use of something. And I, uh, you know, I only bring up the meth. There's this uh, amid uh, numerous one-liners that I really uh, find interesting in the methamphetamine scene that we filmed in uh, in uh, Columbia, Missouri. And this uh, this individual was brought up in Northeast Missouri and was talking about the culture there and you know what one gets introduced to in middle school today. In, uh, in different mm -hmm. parts of the world, varies tremendously. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. During World War II, that methamphetamine was standard issue for all the military. Um, during the post-war period, the late 40s, early 50s, all the factory workers in Japan were taking methamphetamine. It was readily legally available from the drugstores, you know. And I bet there was much less an issue about it, no? As far as as legal, as far as prison? Yeah, as as far as prison and things, um, there was not an issue. They did did find that there were some pretty big uh, issues that did show up because uh, with long-term use. There were there were a lot of problems um, with long-term use among the factory workers. Um, so they did eventually decide to regulate it. And uh, But it, it was do, some do kind of think, acceptance. Do you think like, problems with that have gone overall better or worse since the regulation of it? Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I never studied drug policy in Japan. I just, uh, I was there in the 80s. And I just knew what was happening around me. So I didn't really, you know, see if, you know, I don't know what sort of prison sentences they do for methamphetamine. I do know that the ones for marijuana were, were much greater. And that was... Well, you know, what, what should I reference? Uh, have you seen uh, The House I Live In by Jarecki? I know that I know of it. I haven't seen it yet. It's uh, it's pretty good. You should uh, you should watch it if you're interested. And one of the points, you know, it's all about um, mass incarceration, plague of prisons. To uh, reference a book title by Ernie Drucker, but uh, he, you know, behind mass incarceration and issues of racial inequality in this country, but really that those tie into perpetuation of poverty and control and power in this country and that uh you know we've seen the numbers of white people of a lower socioeconomic class in prisons due to uh methamphetamine use and distribution and uh you know using that as a kind of part of the system of control and uh it's actually helping to diversify on a racial basis the situation where, you know, say the uh, the association of whites with meth use and blacks with uh, crack cocaine use, but um, but I tend to feel, I tend to think that the uh, the strict laws around these drugs uh, mm-hmm. just have far greater far greater uh, damage to the people, to the users, to the communities. To really our whole country. When it well, comes I'm in total. To it. I'm in total agreement on that. I'm very familiar with the drug policy in the U.S. and mass incarceration, and it's we have a huge number of people in prison compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, we do, <laughs> we do, and uh, and a lot of it uh, related to uh, related to drug use. Um, and sale, you know, I was just, uh, it's been trending on Twitter, I think, <laughs> as far as uh, Obama's being more likely to uh, mm-hmm. be pardoning or granting clemency to people, especially who were sentenced to basically what everyone agrees now is uh, are ridiculously too long um, prison terms under 
um, you know, mandated uh, minimum sentencing laws from like 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, I was very excited to read about that, that uh, it's possible the in-record numbers um, could be could be pardoning people who uh, I, I think are in jail uh, unjustly. But um, you know, I want to go back to the point of you were talking about the uh, the use of uh, mm-hmm. methamphetamine. I think you, you were saying around World War II. Um, mm-hmm. We're reading in the New York Times now every month about LSD and mushrooms and uh, MDMA and how they were all once used or possibly now used through research to, you know, help certain patient or another patient with different ailments. And the idea that, uh, you know, every, uh, almost every drug, I think, there are benefits to each of them. And that, what, 100 or now 120 years ago, most of these drugs were used medicinally in America. And mm-hmm. that addiction rates never really uh never really varied tremendously um as as the laws around these drugs changed. And uh I don't know. I think I think there's far more uh far more damage with their illegality associated with the illegality of the drugs as opposed to the drugs themselves and where I come in where I like to think I come in and my motivation behind the book which you know then led to the rest of my work which I'm going to talk about bring up education which is what I mean Mm -hmm. the book obviously is just trying to educate people between the book and the film um, ended up I ended up uh, lecturing at uh, universities and high schools and then got to start at some clinics as well. And uh, it's most sad to me, irrelevant to whether something is legal or not, how dangerous it is, is the, uh, the suppressing of honest, accurate education. Um, mm-hmm. within, especially within the system, within schools. Um, but also just in general, in mainstream media, you know, the lack of objective, honest education. And that is the overall picture. You know, when I first stated my, my honest motivation at 20 years old was based on a fear and then lack of access to information for me and my friends to protect myself. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out we weren't so abnormal. You know, it was basically... I don't want to generalize in any way, but I don't think it was far off from the average American college experience. And I think it relates. It related to kids. I wrote it as a kid for my peers, and it was about trying to just provide information in my attempt to be as objective and accurate as possible. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to mention just one more thing before we get back to the book, and this is to do with Japan again, and because it's, it's just something that goes through my head. Uh, you know, in Japan, they they kind of like the methamphetamine because it makes you work hard, and it goes with their whole work ethic of the culture. They find marijuana extremely scary because you know people are going to say, "Yeah, hey man, let's drop out and let's not work hard," 
and they find it a very frightening drug compared to methamphetamine, which is going to make you, you know, crank out all this work. So, you know, that's, that's part of the cultural attitudes that are attached to that. It's the values, uh, right? Cultural values. Yes, cultural values. And that makes, I mean, that, that makes sense to me. It does. I don't think, I don't agree that they should oppress one group, you know, and not the other based on their taste of what they want to put in their own body. But uh, it definitely makes sense, you know. For me personally, I am naturally a very laid-back, relaxed guy. And because of that, I'm, you know, I'm more uh, prone to use or to enjoy or to find use for uh, uppers and stimulants as opposed to, you know, uh, something like marijuana or downers. Mm-hmm. Now, especially as I, as I use marijuana less and less, if I smoked a joint tonight, I would be, uh, you know, sleeping for the next 24 hours. <laughs> and uh, I have some final essays to write. So it's not, uh, it's not conducive to, uh, to the lifestyle, you know. So it makes sense. But but as I as I just implied, naturally, it should be individual choice, and not uh, not a government trying to uh, you know create some sort of uh, super labor force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, like, I got to uh, tell you, uh, at a later date, I personally definitely want to ask you more about your experience abroad. It sounds very interesting. Well, I would like, you know, to look more in depth of what was actually going on with this in Japan while I was there as well as what's going on today because, you know, this was just something peripheral to me then. Uh, in, back in those days in the 1980s, I was interested in classical Chinese and uh, Lao Tzu and Confucius. And, but these were just things that were going on that I couldn't help observe because, Right. You know, everywhere, all the high schools had these big signs everywhere about beware of, uh, beware of uh, the methamphetamine. It was the keep you awake drug, they called it. Um, right. So, and marijuana, you know, people didn't really know much about it. You didn't see it. It was just, it was so unavailable. Sure. Now, I'm going to get back to the book, and I'm also going to mention, um, you know, I kind of like downers myself. Actually, the only uh, drugs I do these days are all legal ones, so alcohol and caffeine are my two, but, you know, caffeine to get me started. And then Got alcohol I do, about once, I do about once a week, because otherwise it just has too much negative effect on me. But, you know, I, I, I like a downer to, you know, just relax me about, you know, once a week to I take me out of the life cycle, but otherwise I think I'm too hyper up all the time. But we're getting, that's the next chapter of the book is alcohol abuse. So tell me what you uh, had to write about alcohol abuse. Um, you know, I'm thinking more about my own thoughts in general, more currently, as opposed sure, to what I, what I may have written. And I think there are a few different chapters regarding alcohol abuse and more uh, in alcohol regarding harm reduction tactics. Um, But, uh, yeah, you know, like you you just said very specifically, what you know works best for you. And uh, the, well, I I was just going to talk about 
sorry for the dead space. Um, in my head, I'm thinking about drinking ages in this country, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and around that, how we view it uh, culturally with the youth. How in my travels, I've always experienced, especially when I was younger and could observe myself as a subject. Um, the the gross comparison of maturity levels around alcohol use, say between 16 and 18 year olds uh, drinking here versus uh, you know many countries in uh, in Europe. I think there are only three countries that uh, the age is as old as 21. Most places on earth it's 18 or 16, and most places mm-hmm. where it's 16, it's basically just acceptable anywhere when you start drinking wine at the dinner table with your parents. But, uh, but, um, but yeah, my concern is the, what the illegality at that younger age does to what I was talking about earlier, lack of education. That uh, once, you know, in a lot of systems, you know, it reminds me uh, when I was at a, uh, random student drug testing summit in uh for New York State some years back and you know the idea that once you kind of make it impossible or you think you're making it impossible for a population to do drugs then you don't need to educate them about those drugs but what happens when they graduate from that system literally if it's a high school um yeah in my experience it's those kids who get out of a very strict boarding school who find themselves in the most trouble in the first month of so-called freedom at uh, university when they've started, <laughs> when suddenly there's you know barely an authority figure in sight and uh, enough uh, whiskey to choke a donkey. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, what I wanted to say, though, was that with alcohol, it is uh, it is easier uh, and more accessible than most things. Once you, uh, you know, depending on where you grow up, but then once you go to school, and um, thus very easy to practice, to practice with, to hone your your experience, and to you know develop an idea, really of a very fine idea of what your capabilities are what your uh you know what your levels are uh with different types of alcohol different levels of consuming uh to you know ideally maturely develop uh regularly uh healthy experiences with it this takes some people a lot of time i think it's an epidemic uh how it's used uh, you know, I'm not. I, I don't. I barely want to bring up like the Greek system, Greek life in schools, um, and the the illness and death, among other things, that come from that. But again, I think that that culture exists. It was probably born out of rebellion from where these people came from, where they were not supposed to be drinking at all. Mm-hmm. And, well, I know for I know, you know for my well, own I case, guess that, that that if 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 it were a more even keel in certain in certain cultures where a kid has his first drink with his parents under their supervision 
and he's you know learns to do it maturely at uh, as as a teenager you see uh you see less less overdose less death less less uh less choking on vomit while one's unconscious yeah i know for my own case uh well both my parents were religious total teetotalers all four grandparents were religious teetotalers so of course it was a total rebellion for me i see I know so many people who tell me the exact identical story in our Hams group that you know, it was total rebel- rebellion. Uh, you know, right. but the researchers they don't want to look at that. They want to say, you know, um, oh, oh, all alcoholics come from alcoholic homes. I was just seeing George Balin saying that, and it's just such bullshit. And what's what's an alcoholic? Dare I ask? I mean. Well, we certainly know yeah, it's not a teetotaler. The vast majority of the alcohol users who are misusing do not end up what I think. Well, you know what? It's 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 irrelevant. We're not going to get into a you know semantics discussion because most people I know, if they were sitting in a doctor's office, the doctor could fit them under one of the you know twenty examples of what constitutes being an alcoholic, whether it's one night a year that gets out of control. Or you know a more regular uh, steady unhealthy situation, but uh, but yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt yeah. if I did. And we have but seen it's, it's studies. Frustrating. That, yeah, we have seen other studies like the Tecumseh study, um, and they did see a clear effect of rebellion. Um, you know, the the kids that had the moderate drinking parents. They were the ones that they were mostly the moderate drinking kids. It was the kids that had the the extreme parents, either the abstaining parents. You got a lot of heavy drinkers and a lot of non-drinkers. And you know, for the heavy drinking parents, the kids, you know, had a lot of the kids were a lot of uh, heavy drinkers or non-drinkers. You know, you got less moderation when the parents were on either extreme because you either had emulation or you had rebellion. And we know right. that from other studies. Oh. And I think, you know, I think there's a danger on that other extreme that you mentioned as far as people not having enough experience with something. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's those individuals, those kids, when I'm on the road meeting people who, who seem also uh, like they feel they don't need to learn about any of it if they are not going to experiment. And it's these kids mm-hmm. who will randomly run into, you know, a problem one night that they didn't plan on. You know, a lot of the accidents are when you didn't even mean to take something that you took. Or when you finally do and you haven't learned anything because, you know, you thought you were above it or or not involved at all or whatever it may be. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, my my underlying goal, I don't know when it became this, but to, you know, ideally to implement a standard of drug education within health classes across America, say, at this point, most rational doctors and health counselors I talk to say uh, middle school. And what's that? Like 11 years old now, fifth through eighth grade, mm-hmm. sixth through eighth grade, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, it, that it become standard and just accepted as a uh, obviously very realistic possibility in life. And, uh, you know, this winter, more than ever, I've been uh, writing about lately, 
in regards to you know just a simple reminder of drugs knowing no boundaries or barriers as far as race or social class or gender or uh or any of it um we uh the, the media definitely highlighted uh, i think more more so than in previous years a lot of uh a lot of what do they often say accidental misadventure in quotes mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. A lot of that, and uh, I only hope that uh, that this kind of influence is. I mean, it's about it's about uh, the uh, the population, and then you know what what parents, what a group of parents will demand of their school district. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned you just mentioned uh, the media, and I know that in your book you have a chapter about dead celebrities. And what do you think the media does for us or to us? Um, I spoke earlier about what I think is a lack of a lack of presence of uh, objective, accurate information, education. I think that the media, and if we can define that to include you know not just uh not just not just uh, not just one who is trying to uh convey objective information or claiming to try to convey that but also mediums that you know people are most exposed to today um mm-hmm. let that be the movies that one saw this year, um, the uh, you know you, what's on YouTube, I think uh, you know or Netflix, I think is where kids are watching. You know, I, I don't think kids are even watching television as much anymore, and that most of mm-hmm. the footage they view is actually coming off the internet in one form or another. Um, the uh you know how people narrow their view of the news so to speak with uh their rss feeds and twitter feeds who they decide to who they decide to uh, get notifications from on facebook and twitter and and uh i think that most of them the media was the word we started with most of the media is uh is bias and typically is trying to play on uh, fear and insecurity Mm -hmm. that people already hold within themselves. And, uh, you know, in the sense of, well, you brought up that celebrities chapter, in the sense of the idea of the celebrity, the famous person, and drugs, I think that typically it's either grossly glorifying drug use or grossly demonizing it. And that we very rarely get a presentation of this is what's happening. This is, you know, why this person, these are the reasons why this person died and what can we do constructively. Um, There are just so many stories and variables tied in to each narrative that uh, skew it, that skew the issue. And 
I think we we rarely take the we rarely well people don't get the chance because of the media you know if people I mean I I won't blame it all comes down a lot of it comes down to personal accountability of what one is actually trying to learn what one is willing mm-hmm. to learn how how far will one go to seek out information um to, you know is the, is it even crossing one's mind to seek something out mm-hmm. um, but it's uh yeah I, I don't think i don't think the media offers a fair unbiased uh objective viewpoint when it comes to well, when it comes to someone's death and i know that you know what i was saying narratives attached to things that's what sells stories, right? Mhm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't read magazines, but like you see all the magazines when you're buying your food at the grocery store, and yeah, it's all about you know like tying an, an overarching script to something uh, for uh, for humans to you know get emotionally invested in something so that they'll uh, read an excerpt or, or watch the next episode. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it would be, it, it sadly ties in with, I, I think, the, like, natural trend of, uh, and I don't want to veer too far off here, but natural, you know, capitalistic ways of mm-hmm. people trying to make a profit and not necessarily well, help people. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me uh, the most recently was that, Philip Seymour Hoffman when he passed away and you know everybody and their brother wrote this article that basically claimed that they could read his mind and they knew the answer and da 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 and I was just appalled by this you were not you never met this person in your life how can you read his mind from you read some newspaper article about this this is this is just such bullshit yeah yeah yeah, no, it was upsetting. It was upsetting. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's it's fucking disgusting. Am I allowed to curse? I did. I'm not asking. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's disgusting that I have to say that it was very upsetting. Uh, the stories around the death, as if the death itself can't just be upsetting in itself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I caught myself saying that, and uh, it's it's nauseating in itself to have to uh, to talk about this. One, um, you know, I listened because I, I mentioned it because we're we're on a podcast right now, right? Technically, this is a podcast. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever listen to uh, Alan Clear his podcast at uh, Harm Reduction Coalition? Oh yeah. He oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. uh, I'm forgetting her name, the in-house doctor there. But they they uh, they Church had a good. Stancliffe. Yes, Church yes, Stancliffe. yes. Stan, Stancliffe. They had a good conversation regarding uh, Hoffman right around that time. That you know I thought uh, was on an objective platform. But uh, but yeah, sadly I, uh, I I'm overdue. I have to add Hoffman's death to that chapter. Along with a few others I will, I will, from this year, I will have to go listen to that podcast. Um, and everybody, if you go to Harm Reduction Harm Reduction Coalition website, they have 
a ton of good podcasts there. I've listened to numbers of them. There's some really good stuff there. So go listen to them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they do. They do. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, in the Philip Seymour Hoffman case, and on a personal note, I was uh, – this is irrelevant, but yeah, it, it was hard not to get tied up with the emotion in that. Um, I was a fan of his. Uh, I had most recently seen him uh, in uh, Miller's Death of a Salesman on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was in uh, like a year earlier, and uh, you know, just like the vivid uh, flashbacks of like you know the power and the passion behind his pieces it was mm-hmm. uh i feel i felt lucky to to have uh you know seen that felt that in person because um, he mm-hmm. was a moving character in uh mm-hmm. in many of his roles but um but yeah it was you know you read you read these stories and now now we're reading about uh his his friend, the uh, the uh, the other uh, user of heroin, the musician, and the bat story mm-hmm. is kind of just like dragging it along when mm-hmm. it, it mm-hmm. may be completely irrelevant to Mr. Hoffman's death. Um, but yeah, as you said, it was anything but objective, right? We're hearing narrative conjecture in order to what in order to get people to keep reading, I suppose, um, or mm-hmm. to keep watching. Where and everyone, where it should just it, it should just be the opening piece to uh, to a new series of harm reduction lectures that are taking place for uh, anyone who's willing to hear them. Yeah. One thing that really struck me was everyone had their personal axe to grind. I mean, the 12-step enthusiast said, you see, he needed more 12-step. And, you know, uh, people opposed to the drug war said, see, it's all the fault of the drug war. And well, I, I tend to be a little more on that side. But, you know, it's just like everybody just used this to grind their own axe. And it's like, you didn't, you didn't know this guy personally. You can't read his mind. This is just, I was just disgusted with everybody on every side. Well, it's it's because we're all in this we're all in the shitstorm together. Where it's mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned uh, it's not just well it, it it it's all related to money in a sense, but it's also movements, you know. And if one movement is using it to try to gain traction, um, the 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 opposing people uh, then feel pressed to do the same. You know, if they're going to mm-hmm. lose ground, uh, irrelevant to where I stand morally, I, I do think that's clear anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. um, so it's yeah. Ideally, there would have been a truce where everyone takes a step back, let's respect the situation, maybe talk to it objectively. But you know, if you have your uh, AA going in there arguing or na uh in this case um you know you're gonna have uh people who uh disagree with that model uh speaking to the other side because um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess in a sense they're they're in competition with one another not 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 necessarily even to make a profit but to 
either help people or to control people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's very, very complicated. But uh, what I would, I guess, your question, my, uh, it's, I'm sorry, I've changed the title of that a few times, but I think now Dead, dead Celebrities, mm-hmm. I think it was initially like accidental overdoses or something. But um, um, what I very, very simply do in that chapter is just a one-sentence description of what killed that person. Mm-hmm. Maybe one out of 20 of them, there's a good, uh, I shouldn't say good, it's a stupid subjective term, uh, there's a uh, potentially entertaining uh, quote from the person. But uh, but the point being that uh, this person died from this, as reported. You take away from that whatever you want. And it's... Uh, I started off somewhat hesitant, that chapter, because it seemed somewhat superficial and on the surface. And silly, almost. But uh, when you look at it as a complete piece, it really paints a fantastic uh, picture of how people have been efficiently killing themselves, accidentally or sometimes on purpose, in the last two, three hundred years. And, uh, you know, I think... uh, I think people could take a lot away from that as far as, and I've actually, it was a really interesting, I've, uh, in the last year during school, I've worked at uh, a drug treatment clinic or two and have mm-hmm. done uh, some good uh, group work, facilitating group work and uh, some overdose prevention. And I've passed that list around. And it's really interesting to see how people identify, like within a discussion, how people identify with certain, in their mind, you know, these people are all kind of characters, whether it was a sports hero or someone known as their most famous film character. But to identify with a character, whether some sort of bonding between a shared drug of choice or to realize how old the person was, I often put in parentheses the age of the person at the time of their death, um, so to see that connection, um, you know, kind of realizing, well, if these people died, maybe I'm not invincible like I often act, and uh, and I think it's uh, I think it's helpful just to objectively mm-hmm. uh, to objectively look and see, and ideally, obviously, to learn from it. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. uh, you know be a little more careful with your own behavior. Before we leave the media, there's this one thing that's going through my mind, and that is the fictional character of Sherlock Holmes, who I I grew up. Sorry, when I, I love was that like, you brought that. <laughs> I'm yeah, yeah, no Sherlock, and you know, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, we we could uh, just about Robert Downey Jr. himself, right? He's a character in this. In this well, field. I'm thinking when when I grew up. Uh, I was about 10 or so when I read all the Sherlock Holmes stories, 
And I read them long before I saw any uh, dramatization of them. And, of course, Sherlock Holmes in the books was this recreational user of cocaine and morphine when he wasn't working, when he was bored. He would shoot cocaine or he would shoot morphine, and then he would stop and work on his cases. And there's no problem ever, you know. So... And what for, it was no in, problem. It was no problem for him or for how uh, the public viewed this work. Well, there was no problem for him personally, and um, you know, people from that period viewed him as an eccentric character. Oh, what a character! They didn't view him as an addict or a monster. It was just, oh, he's a way out there, isn't he? Right. And it's totally different from the I've seen the I've seen the uh the uh public television version of Sherlock. I haven't seen the other one, the elementary where he's got the, some sponsor, Doctor Watson is his sponsor or some damn thing. I refuse to even watch it. Actually I don't watch television. I haven't watched television for about twenty years because I'm too I'm too addicted to it, so I don't allow it in my house. It's got it. You know, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen any Sherlock television either. I I typically also I'm not just saying this. I don't watch television shows. Uh, similar reason, not as extreme as what you just said, but um, but yeah, I'm I'm a very big fan of films, um, and I think the point is that there's a level of immediate closure to the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you can get invested in the story. There there's more meat there, and uh, and it and it finishes in a sitting. I the basically to your point, I don't watch the shows that people are saying are incredible because I don't want to have to wait a week. I don't want to have to you know accidentally spend a whole weekend watching 30 hours of a story. Uh, sorry for the tangent, but uh, back to Sherlock. Yeah, in the two series now, he's a he's a drug addict. He's a he's a recovering drug addict in both of the series, both the one on public television and the one on network television. Um, and the one on network television, Doctor Watson is like his sponsor or his recovery coach or some damn thing. I mean, it's. It's just, I've, I've read about that one. I haven't seen it. My friend watches the one on public television, which is actually, uh, I saw an episode, a couple episodes with my friend, and they were they were good. I liked them. But the idea that, why can't he be a recreational drug user? So it why sounds like they've turned, it, they've turned it into a marketing pitch for drug treatment. Yes, exactly. Well, that's, I don't that's know any. Bad. I feel bad I for, for their viewers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know any uh, hero of any contemporary drama or anything that is a recreational opiate user. It just uh, it's like you can't do that. It's like having a Jewish hero in Nazi Germany. You just it's, a, it's right. against rules. Um, sadly, I uh, well, not sadly, but regarding this conversation, as I said, I haven't seen any of the television. As you noted, I brought up uh, Danny Jr. because I enjoyed the. Uh, the first uh, Sherlock film from what, like five years ago? By first, I mean with with Danny Jr. starring. Um, okay. And no, I uh, seen that one. have you not? 
it's, no, I have not seen the, that. It's in a more. It is in a more uh, of what you were describing from back in the day. Uh, just mm-hmm. seen as an eccentric, you know, where the brilliant people are allowed to be called uh, eccentric in a kind of affectionate way. Um, but uh, yeah, as far as uh, the the light cocaine use and uh, and not um, you know no, no treatment in sight by a long shot. Maybe uh, maybe some condescending comments from Doctor Watson, played by Jude Law, but it's all kind of taken uh, entertainingly. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's well, you know, as far as the public television version, it sounds like what's the show? Uh, Intervention. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that, and that's another example of what I was talking about of what I, what I typically, I don't want to use the word hate, um, what I typically frown upon regarding just completely one-sided uh, viewpoint of drug use uh, that that people have access to if they're not looking any further than you know, changing channels on their remote control, tired after a day's work. You know, what is so dangerous about the one-sided presentation of drug use is kids will, you know, they will hear if you take an opiate one time, you're going to immediately be addicted for the rest of your life. And they take an opiate and they're not immediately addicted. And they say, this was all bullshit. What else else could we do? Then they don't believe... Then they don't believe anything, and some yeah. of them start taking opiates every day. Well, that's that will get you addicted if you're taking opiates every day. Yeah. You have to have time off, you know. Yeah. But they, once you once once the kids catch you in the first lie, what marijuana doesn't turn you into a psychotic axe killer? <laughs> once they catch you in the first lie, you don't believe anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's often uh, what I think about when uh, when you read the uh, instructions on a lot of prescription medications, you know, that you can't have uh, one beer while on this <laughs> medication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I you know, know you, you have a beer and uh, things, uh, things turn out okay, and then, you know, then you get a little too cocky. Yeah, it's very problematic because um, some of the medications are really dangerous to mix with alcohol and some are just not really the best idea, but it's not really right. harmful either. Uh, but they have the same warning on all of them. Do not mix right. with alcohol. Right. And what this is what, you know, it's a lack, it's a lack of, uh, it's a lack of education. And, you know, I guess one would argue it's because they're trying to scare people in order to get them to not use anything, to not mm-hmm. misuse anything, right? To not use anything that uh, isn't going to directly profit them. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I when it comes down to it, if I can uh, state this drastically, dramatically. I think it's a lack of consideration for human life. Yeah, I think so. To not, to not, you know, and a lack of, and a lack of respect for, you know, 
the general, the intellect of the general population to be able to think things through and make choices for themselves. It is. And it's also this idea that fun is bad. If it's fun, it's bad. You know. Funny, because um, I thought fun by definition was good, no? <laughs> but that's the whole thing. I don't know. Well, I have a pretty a good time when I have fun. It's pretty healthy, <laughs> I think. Otherwise, otherwise, you know, we'd all commit suicide by uh, by 30. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, a lot of these people, you know, these experts, when they're defining drug abuse or drug misuse or whatever they want to call it, they say, well, if it's not used as prescribed by a doctor for medication, it's misuse or it's abuse. There's no such right. thing as, oh, you can have fun with these, with these pills, which you can have fun with these pills, and you can be Correct. safe and have fun. Yeah. There's, there's nothing... Yeah, there's nothing in the DSM-4 that defines recreational heroin use. <laughs> right, right. DSM-5, coming soon. DSM-5, oh, it's out now. It's been out a few months now. i got to get yeah, a copy. The, uh, and it's now, right, substance use disorders, I believe. Yes, yes, but, it is. But um, it's it's all about, you know, not not admitting it's it's about caring for actually care, caring for everyone's life caring for the lives that are going to experiment with drugs which could be anyone right it could be any of our children it could be anyone in our own families it's about uh, actually caring about the welfare of each individual within the population and that is not at all the case uh, in this country, most of our, you know, we we put drug users in jail. A lot mm -hmm. of our mentally ill people are in jail too. Mm -hmm. A lot of our poor people. So exactly, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, really bullshit. Uh, I don't think, I don't think uh, it's it's the agenda of uh, most people in power. To uh, to help most most people who are dealing with uh, ailments of some kind, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. and I think you know maybe even the opposite in some cases, the opposite agenda in order to kind of keep the status quo of what's uh, what's going on here. But um, yeah. It is a lot about the status quo. I mean, if you're upper middle class and white, you can smoke marijuana, you can talk about it. If you're poor and black and you smoke marijuana, they come and take your kids away. Yeah. Yeah. One of the uh we didn't uh we didn't figure out the budget. It was going to be way too complicated a process, but uh one of the we wanted to do a short film Shortly after we finished PlaySafe, I had been uh, I had joined in a lot of protests around that time regarding uh, uh, stop and frisk policies mm -hmm. within uh, New York City and the NYPD and the racial inequality. This was around you know what the uh, 2012 and uh, yeah like 2011 2012 and uh, 
we wanted to do kind of an undercover, extensive, like, you know, uh, surveillance of, you know, I mean, they've done the research in certain organizations where the, you know, exact corners have been identified in Brooklyn and the Bronx where these just take place daily. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the uh, the abuse of, you know, any kid that a cop uh, can play the odds uh doesn't have money for a lawyer and uh, will, you know, will fall for uh, intimidation from police. Maybe rationally so in some cases, right? I would empty my pockets if I truly believed that a uh, cop would pistol whip me if I didn't. But, um, but uh, yeah, it's incredibly troubling. Being, uh, well, having been in this city long enough, uh, and exposed to these different extreme neighborhoods to kind of just have lived, you know, the examples that you just uh, stated. Being able to walk around in certain places and basically do whatever you want and, you know, the opposite being the case a few miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're about coming to the end of the show, so what would you like to leave us with uh, today? Um, well, I'm glad with uh, everything we've left folks with already. I'll say that. This has been a fun mm-hmm. conversation, interesting conversation. I think uh, um, well, regarding uh, regarding the media piece and talking about film I think, you know, the goal, because you asked me, my motivation regarding, uh, you know, initially for the book, and we made the documentary Play Safe in order to, well, initially because, well, for anyone who didn't want to read a book, but also uh, to provide visual aid for some of the more complicated processes that we tackle as far as mm-hmm. content. Um mm-hmm. But it was really more, you know, the need to respond to that lacking presence within the media, within um, what's offered today, as far as mm-hmm. an attempt to uh, to educate in an objective sense, where you know we're not we're not judging. We we try to not uh, say whether it's good or bad or fun or not to uh, to do a drug. And uh, to to anyone who uh, wants to just learn objectively and like witness a drug experience, as I, I think I always wanted to get to view somebody actually on a drug before, especially before I tried it for the first time. Uh, that was the point of uh, the film and the motivation of the film. And I guess in a in an idealistic sense to have more works like that accessible for free. That's a big comment for free accessible mm-hmm. to someone of any age. I think YouTube actually put an age restriction on the heroin and Oxycontin scene, but uh, we're going to put it up on a few other uh, sites, you know, video sites. But, uh, but yeah, the, I, I guess that, that people should, uh, you know, promote these kind of conversations open, honest conversations and uh, try to break the taboo 
of uh, even talking about these things, let alone let alone living with them. Well, thank you for being our guest this evening, Eddie Einbinder. I appreciate it, Ken. This was fun. And everyone, the book is How to Have Fun and Not Die, and the video is on YouTube. It's called Play Safe. There's links to both from the description of the show on the site. So we'll see you all next week. So everyone, good night. Thank you.